We have all been humbled. But where does humility come from? We've all been humbled, but how do we cultivate humility in our lives? I was humbled just the other day. I, I had to make a run down to Costco on Jefferson Avenue in Newport News. I'm in charge of the vending machine at our local community pool. It's real high-level stuff, a real prestigious position, requires a lot of mental acumen, but everyone has to have a job at the pool, and so my job is the vending machine. It was Memorial Day weekend, and so I, my goal was to get that thing stocked with all the Nutter Butters, Oreo cookies, and Chips Ahoy kids could want all summer long. So there I was in Costco. I loaded up two basketfuls of filled with groceries. I went out to my van, and I loaded, I, I was about to load everything in the van, and I realized I don't have my keys so there's my basket full of snacks for the vending machine. I have no keys, so I have to abandon my grocery carts in the middle of the parking lot at Costco. And if you remember last time I spoke here, I told you a story about keys. I am key dysfunctional. I have key issues. I have key problems. I don't know how to use them. I don't know where to store them. And so there I am, $500 worth of snacks, and I have to leave it in the middle of the parking lot. I go back into Costco. I retrace my steps, I wander around the store, and I can't find my keys anywhere. So I go up to the membership desk, and I said, has anyone turned in any keys? They said, no, and I went, I retraced my steps again, can't find them. I come back to the membership desk, I say, has anyone turned in any keys? They say, no, and I go to walk away, and I turn around. I don't know what made me think to ask this, but I just go, is this the place where people would turn in keys? And the lady goes, no, it's not. Why didn't you tell me that the first place when I asked you if anyone turned in keys? So she sends me to the lost and found. I go to the lost and found. I said, does anyone turn any keys? He said, we have several keys here, sir. You're going to have to describe them. Now, this is where it gets a little embarrassing because I was losing my keys so much. Nina told me that I had to get a keychain, so I have to say, well, my keys are the one with the keychain that's a green turtle wearing an orange bathing suit. So these are my keys right there, green turtle, orange bathing suit. So he moves aside the Audi keys and the BMW keys. And there I am, my Chrysler minivan key with the green turtle wearing the orange bathing suit. I go back out. Luckily, no one stole the Nutter Butters. They're all still there in the parking lot. I open up the back of my van and I go to load everything in. I think, you know, it's pretty hot out today. I have deep concern for the state of the honey buns. If I put these honey buns in the back of this hot van, they're just gonna melt, the frosting's gonna be everywhere. So I, I reach through my van, I start the car, the air conditioning is blasting, there's everything loaded into the van, and I shut the door and I go around to open the driver's door and it's locked. And I, I kind of think, this could be a problem, but then I think, you know what? Some engineer has to have thought of this. If you open up the back gate once, if you went in through the back gate, it has to stay open. So I go back to the back gate. I go to open it up, locked. So now not only have I lost my keys in Costco, I've locked myself out of my van. And I, I go to do what I do when I get in trouble. I call my friend Rick. Rick is the kind of guy... We all have someone in our life like this where they always answer their phone. You know, I can never get to my phone. Rick, no matter what's going on, this is Rick, and he's always ready to help. He's helped me put beds together. He's helped me put curtains up. He helps me everything that I need. So I call him up, and it's ringing. I'm going, I need Rick. I need... This is Rick. I said, Rick, 
This is the big one. Because he's been telling me all year long that I needed to get another set of keys. I haven't gotten the keys. I said, Rick, this is the big one. It just so happens that Rick does work at a car dealership. I give him the VIN. 15 minutes later, Rick is there opening up the car. Here's my friend Rick making it happen for me. And we get in the car. So after we get in the car, I text Rick just to let him know how grateful I am for him. I said, Rick, we are a good team. Not sure what I am bringing to our team, but I'm sure glad to have you in my life. You see, we have all been humbled. But where does humility come from? We've all been humbled. But how do we cultivate humility in our lives? Psalm 131 provides the answer for us. It reads like this. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. And that's it. Just three verses of this pilgrim song. Just three verses of a song that the Israelites would sing as they were journeying to Jerusalem to put God's presence back at the center of their lives. Three verses to remind them when their journey got difficult of what humility really is and how it is forged in our lives. You see, Psalm 131 teaches us that humility is forged by embracing God's no. Humility is forged by embracing God's no. This is the lesson for the long haul that the psalm provided for those pilgrims going to Jerusalem. You see, the key metaphor, the fundamental metaphor of Psalm 131 is found in verse 2. Let me just read verse 2 for you again. I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The dominant metaphor of this psalm is that of a weaned child. See, weaning is one of the first great no's we experience in our lives. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the book Along Obedience in the Same Direction, he flushes out this metaphor of weaning like this. He says, it is pitched battle. The baby is denied expected comforts and flies into rages or sinks into sulks. There are sobs and struggles, but the infant, excuse me, the infant is facing its first great sorrow and it is in sore distress. But to the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and find our solace in him who denies them to us. Think about that. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which, which once appeared to be essential and find our solace in him who denies them to us. You see, this metaphor of a weaned child reveals three questions to which God always or often answers us with a no. And if we are to have humility forged in our lives, we must learn to embrace God's no to these questions. Can I be God? Can I have that now? Can I avoid that 
pain. These are the questions of Psalm 131. We must learn to embrace God's no as we study them. The first one, can I be God? You see, an infant's perception of the mother is that their mother is actually an extension of their body. Infants have a hard time determining where their body ends and their mom's body begins. And in weaning, infants realize that the reality is they are an extension of the mother's body, not the other way around. The mother does not proceed from them. They, in fact, proceed from the mother. We face this same issue when it comes to our perception of God. Is God an extension of us, or are we an extension of him? Is God an extension of our desires, our will, our plans? Are we an extension of his desires, his will, created to fulfill his plan and his mission? Can I be God, or will God be God? The Bible is full of stories wrestling with this question. The fountainhead of all of these stories comes to us in Genesis chapter 3, especially verses 1 through 6, which is the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, wrestling with the question, can I be God? Because God gave them a command. He said, you can eat the fruit from the trees of this garden except one. The, tree and the, fruit of, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall, you shall not eat it, you shall not touch it, or you will surely die. And that's the boundary that God sets up for the first man and the first woman. Yet along comes a serpent. Along comes Satan. And he says, no, 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 you're, you're answering the question, can I be God, with a no. You really should answer the can I be God question with a yes. God just is keeping fun things from you. There are certain things that you should know about this world that God is hiding from you. And if you would just say, can I be God, yes, and take from that tree, you would have a much better existence. And so Eve stands there in front of the tree and the, the Bible says her husband Adam is with her. So he is culpable too. And she says three things about the fruit of this tree. She says first that it was pleasing to the eye. There's an aesthetic beauty to this fruit. Second, she says that it looked like it was good for food. There's a practical application to eating this fruit. I'll be nourished. My hunger will go away. It looks like this fruit is good for food. And finally, and here's the kicker, and it looked like it was desirable for gaining wisdom. It looks like if I say, can I be God? Yes, and I take of this fruit, that I'm going to know something that God's been trying to hide from me. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. And they take the fruit from the tree. And immediately they realize something is wrong. They realize that they are ashamed of their nakedness. The first thing they do is they create coverings for themselves. They hide from each other. Then they hide from God. Fear, anger, blame is all introduced to the narrative almost immediately. And from then on, we see the downfall and the, true, uh, the, true, uh, the truth of what happens when we answer the can I be God question with a yes. Ultimately, that leads us to spiritual and physical death. See, in Psalm 131, verse 2, David gives us a different answer to the can I be God question than Adam and Eve. Excuse me, in verse 1, 
He says in verse 1, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And it sounds like David is anti-intellectual here. Sounds like David doesn't want to go to school. I'm not going to concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. It has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do with IQ. You see, great matters and things that are wonderful all throughout the Old Testament, these, use are, are, these words are used to refer to that which is in God's realm, that which is God's responsibility, the acts that God takes care of that we are not asked to take care of. Great matters, things too wonderful, refers to the realm of God. And David is saying, I'm leaving that which is up to God to God, and I'm going to take care of that which God has asked me to take care of. Can I be God? No. I'm going to embrace that no and just let God take care of the things that he has told me he will take care of. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, but since we're studying the Psalms of Ascent, I I pick some verses to illustrate this right out of the book of Psalms. So this is just the idea of things too wonderful, always referring to the realm and the activity of God. You see it in Psalm 9-1, Psalm 26-7, Psalm 75-1, Psalm 105-20, and five times it gets repeated in Psalm 107, this idea that wonderful refers to the realm of God. Let me just read you a couple of those passages from Psalm 107. It's actually the same phrase that gets repeated over and over again. Let them, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. There it is. Wonderful refers to God's action, God's activity. Verse 15, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds before men. It goes on to repeat that phrase three more times, five times in all in the, total of, in the totality of the psalm. You see, the psalmist David has embraced the answer, no, to the question, can I be God? The question this morning is, have we embraced the answer? Or are we still trying to be God? Are we still refusing to open up different aspects of our lives to God's management? Are we still hiding as Adam and Eve hid in the garden from each other and from God? Or will we embrace the no that we see David embracing in Psalm 131? All of us, all of the, excuse me, all of the no answers that we need to embrace come from this no. This fundamental no puts our whole lives in proper perspective. Eugene Peterson talks about it like this. He says, our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation. With God loving and us being loved. With God making and us being made. With God revealing and us understanding. With God commanding and us responding. Being a Christian means accepting the terms of creation. Accepting God as our maker and redeemer and growing day by day into an increasingly glorious creature in Christ, developing joy, experiencing love, maturing in peace. By the grace of Christ, we experience the marvel of being made in the image of God. If we reject this way, the only alternative is to attempt the hopelessly fourth-rate, embarrassingly awkward imitation of God made in the image of men and women like us. I love that. Hopelessly fourth-rate, embarrassingly awkward imitation. There's an old saying that goes, God made man in his image. 
And ever since then, man has been attempting to return that favor. We need to get the order of creation straight. He's the creator. We are the creatures. Can I be God? No. This is the first step to allowing God to forge humility in your life. When the mother says no to the child, the child realizes the proper order of the created world. And humility is forged. Second question. Can I have that now? Oh, this is relevant to so many aspects of our lives. And to the infant that's being weaned as well. You see, an infant in uh, the early part of their life, they nurse quite frequently. Every couple of hours. Once the weaning process begins, they are forced to wait longer and longer for what they want. If they could speak, they might ask, can I have that now? And the answer would come back, no. Imagine the frustration. Imagine the anxiety. Imagine even the desperation when that no comes back and they're denied. The only source of food that they're even aware exists. Can you relate to the frustration that the baby might be going through in the weaning process? What is the that in your life? When I say, can I have that now, what comes to your mind where you've been asking God, praying, can I have that now? Can this come to fruition in my life? What is the that in your life? Get something in your mind as we have this discussion. I'll give you a few examples, some common things I hear when I sit down to have lunch with people or breakfast with people or in a counseling situation. Here are some that I hear. Can I have that now? Marriage. I've been waiting so long for that someone and I'm starting to worry that they might not be out there or that maybe marriage isn't part of God's plan for my life. Can I have that now, children? And this one is intensely personal, intensely painful. There's a couple at the church where I serve that comes up to me regularly with glassy eyes filled with tears saying, not yet, Travis, please keep praying for us. We desperately want to have children of our own and God has not allowed that to happen yet. Please keep praying. We, we need a miracle. It's starting to affect all these different aspects of our lives. It's starting to affect our marital relationship. We keep hearing this no. We're not sure how much longer we can handle it. Can I have that now, that job? Maybe, maybe you're unemployed. Maybe it's been a long time since you've had steady employment. You think, can I have that now? I just want to provide for my family. And doors keep shutting. People keep calling back and saying no. Or maybe you're in a job. You're saying, can I have that now, that raise that I need to provide for my family? Can I have that now, a home of our own? Can I have that now, relational healing? Maybe there's a rift in a relationship that's meaningful to you, a relationship that you've cared about for a long time and something has happened and something's come between you and this other person and you're begging for relational healing but there hasn't been appropriate levels of repentance. There hasn't been an offer of amends to be made or acknowledgement that there is even a problem and so you're desperate for relational healing but it's not time yet. Or this one I, I hear a lot, can I have that now, physical healing? Maybe it's a sickness, an illness, a battle with cancer or another terminal illness that you're involved in. All the time I have people come up to me and say, I've been praying for healing and it just doesn't seem like God is doing anything with 
my prayers. You see, the root of the word humility in both the Hebrew and Greek language, the language of the Old Testament and the language of the New Testament, the root of the word humility is low. And so when people would originally read these scriptures, they would, they would come across this word humility and they would realize that they would, they would be asked to stoop down to embrace humility. That the idea was to move closer to the ground when you were forced to embrace humility. See, embracing God's answer of no when we ask, can I have that now? It forges humility in our lives because it forces us to put our plans on a lower level than God's plans. It forces us to make sure our will is subjugated to God's will. What we want comes secondary, secondarily to what God wants. And so, while that may be difficult to embrace, the note of that uh, question, I will also say there is hope because no now does not mean no always. No now does not mean no always. And I'll talk a little bit in a moment about why I believe this. But no now does not mean no always. If you're thinking about physical healing, I was reading an article in Christianity Today a couple of months ago, and it was about healing, and they had a phrase that jumped off the page to me. They said, God's answer to our prayer for healing is always yes. I thought, that's interesting. I come across so many people, and they feel like they're getting a no answer when they ask for healing. So I went on to read the article. God's answer to our prayer for healing is always yes. Yes, sometimes now, and if not now, yes, always in the future. So the Bible speaks of a day in Revelation chapter 21 when he will wipe every tear, when God will wipe every tear from every eye. We read that there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. We read that heaven and earth are, are united in a glorious fashion and there doesn't need to be a sun because God himself is the sun. God himself is the light shining down on all of humanity. And you read no more hurt, no more sorrow, no more pain. You read about the resurrection of our bodies and the new glorious bodies that we receive. And so God's answer to our prayer for healing is always yes. Sometimes it's yes now. But if it is not yes now, it will be yes in the future. I had a friend uh, growing up, was good friends with my wife, one of my wife's best friends and she went through an extended period of waiting for marriage and there was a lot of prayer we thought this is just a wonderful girl she has so much to offer but she went through this season of of waiting for marriage and finally she just meets this the best guy just incredible man and he happened to be seven years younger than she was and so my wife was giving one of the toasts at the wedding and she said, now we, we have perspective. You know, we look back and when we prayed for our husbands in college and, you know, we said, Lord, you know, we pray for this, this husband and then there was this extended period of waiting. We're going, where was this husband when we were in college? Now we know the answer. He was in middle school. <laughs> and so God often uses extended periods of time in our lives to cultivate humility, to cultivate trust in our lives. This happened to me just uh, about a year ago. 
I was in a situation at my church in Williamsburg. I was the interim lead pastor. And I had been the interim lead pastor for over a year. And I had applied for the job to become the permanent lead pastor. And in the midst of that application process, Nina and I realized we were expecting our fourth child. And we were in a housing situation that probably was full after two children. And we were at over capacity with three children. And now with the fourth child coming, we had to do something about our housing situation. There was one problem. I realized that I had been the interim lead pastor for so long that if I didn't get the job permanently, that it just wouldn't be fair to the person that did get the job for me to kind of hang on in the background. I didn't think it would give them a fair shot to really step up and lead. I didn't think it would help the congregation attach to that new person. I didn't think this, it would be healthy for the staff to attach to the new person or for that person to be able to lead staff meetings. It had been about 18 months and the, the staff uh, was accustomed, has, had gotten accustomed to my leadership style. And if I'm just sitting in the back of the room, I realized, oh, that's not going to be healthy for this person or for the staff. And so I go, I'm in the middle of this process. It's been going on and on and on. We need to figure out our housing situation. And so I, I talked to some elders about it. I talked to the search committee about it. I'm trying to get clarity. How long is this really going to take? Um, and I, I prayed and prayed and prayed. And I just felt like God was saying, Travis, I'm asking you to be faithful right now. And you know I'm asking you to take some steps forward. You know I'm asking you to move in the general direction that you feel like I'm calling you, which is to this church in Williamsburg. And so you're going to have to move without knowing all of the answers. And an opportunity for uh, a beautiful home in the exact area where we had hoped to be uh, came up. And we were able to uh, move. And we stepped out. And we moved. Now I was on the hook to sell two houses if I didn't get the job. We moved so we could stage our old house and try to sell it. We moved on a Wednesday. And I kid you not, the search committee called me on Thursday and said, we're going to recommend you to the elders for the job permanently. Eighteen months it had been. And I move on a Wednesday. The search committee calls on a Thursday. Why does God work like that? He's forging humility in our lives. He's saying, get low. Put your plans second to my plans. Put your ideas second to my ideas. I'm the one in charge here. I just interviewed a woman who was 103 years old. We studied this same, these same passages of scripture at our church in Williamsburg. And we did a, a video series with some older members of our congregation. What really was helpful for them to follow Jesus for the long haul, for a long extended period of time. And for the last week, I was determined to find the oldest person at the Williamsburg Community Chapel. And I searched and searched and searched. And there's a woman named Anna Thompson, 103, born in 1912. And she comes every week. And I sat down with her. And she had been following Jesus for 81 years. So if you are younger than 81 today, Anna Thompson has been following Jesus for longer than you have been alive. So it might behoove us to pay attention to what she had to say. I said, what's the key? What's been your secret? And she said, one word, Travis, trust. That is why God answers no to the question, can I have that now? He's putting us in trust school. 
He's asking us, will you humble yourself? Will you allow yourself to be shaped by my direction and my commands rather than the way you believe this should go? Can I have that now? No. And when we answer no to that question, humility is forged in our lives. These psalms are arranged in such a way that they flow into each other and they connect. They connect with one another. The themes do. And so Psalm 130 actually connects well with Psalm 131 and this idea of waiting. And there's an illustration that gets used in Psalm 130 that I just want to read to you. The psalmist writes, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And the way you understand Hebrew poetry is it's always doing this thing. It's called parallelism. You say the same, you say, you make a statement. Then you say the same thing a second time, but in a slightly different way. And as the reader, you're figuring out how do these two statements relate to each other. They're similar, but different. And the, the, you hone in on that difference, and that's how you figure out what the author's trying to communicate. That's a little Hebrew poetry 101. But here in Psalm 130... You get more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. There's no change. There's no difference. And what the psalmist is trying to say is pay attention to this metaphor. So what is true about watchmen waiting for the morning? Well, there's two things that they don't control. The first is how dark the night is. Watchmen don't control whether the moon is a full moon or a crescent moon or if the clouds are covering the moon and the stars. They don't control how, how dark the night is. And second, they don't control how long the night is. The night is different lengths at different times of the year. They can't control the level of darkness or the length of darkness. And so if you are hearing God's no in your life right now, and you're not able to control how dark this no is, uh, the darkness that this no is bringing about in your life, or the length of time you've spent waiting for the yes to come, just know this. Your waiting is not a waste of time. For as you wait, as you go to that trust school, God is forging humility in your life. And so that brings us to the final question. Can I avoid that pain? Because as I speak about this, as I read this, I say this sounds incredibly painful. Is there another way? Can I avoid that pain? In the same way that it is inevitable For the infant who is denied the only food they have ever known to experience pain, pain from loss of what is comfortable, pain from not understanding what is going on, pain from simply being hungry, it is inevitable that as God forges humility in our lives, we will experience pain. You see, weaning is a messy process. I texted some of my friends. I said, hey, send me some pictures of your children as they're trying out food for the first time. This is my friend Hope Lee from our good friends Lori and Bryce Lee. There she's trying out that food. This is Stratton Smith, the daughter of our pastor of children's ministry up at the Williamsburg Community Chapel. You see, even the pastor of children's ministry can't control his own child while they're being weaned and the mess that gets made. And this is Ruthie Simone right here, my own daughter right there. Yogurt all over the place. And what I was struck by was each one of my friends that sent me a picture all had the same picture. It's essentially the same picture that everyone sent me. 
Because the process of weaning is messy. The process of forging humility in our lives is messy. and It's a hard pill for us to swallow. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher and theologian, he wrote this about Psalm 131. He wrote, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It's only three verses. I read it earlier in the message. That's it. That's the whole psalm. One of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. And I want to say this morning that although the process of humility being forged in our lives is messy, it's also worth it. Look at the result in David's life when he has humility forged in his life. It's in verse 2. But I have stilled and quieted my soul. That's the result of humility in our lives, a still and quiet soul. This morning, have you come running life at a frenetic pace of an instant society? Do you long for a still and quiet soul? Would you love for that to be characteristic of you? Would you love to say the words that David said and be able to mean them, but I have stilled and quieted my soul? If you would like to embrace humility and have a stilled and quiet soul, here's how we get there. We look to the cross. That's our application. We look to the cross. The cross is the ultimate picture of humility. Look at Philippians chapter 2 with me. It says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, the passage starts off saying Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God. If there was an organizational chart to the universe, he would be at the top. If there was a CEO for the universe, he would be the one. If there was a president for the world, he would be at the top of the organizational chart of the universe. But what you see is a downward mobility. Imagine someone climbing down a ladder. I heard John Ortberg preach on this one time and it just captivated me, this image of someone climbing down a ladder, down the ladder of life, because he starts off as God. He is found in the image and likeness of a man, so he goes God to man and he's hum he humbles himself to the point of death. But death wasn't even low enough for Jesus. Remember the root of the word humility is low. Death is not even low enough. Death on a cross. The worst form of capital punishment ever devised by humanity. And so you get this image of a man climbing down a ladder. And the problem is we're all climbing up a ladder. So imagine what happens is Jesus climbs down and we climb up. At some point we pass Jesus along the way. And we start to get further and further away from him. And so I say, let us look to the cross. For on the cross, we see Jesus embracing God's no. We see Jesus hearing the same no answers to the questions that all of us ask. In Mark chapter 10, verse 34, we see the question, can I be God? 
And the answer comes back, no, as Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus hangs there on the cross, he says, it doesn't feel like I'm God right now. Can I be God? It doesn't feel like it right now. With these nails in my hand, with these nails in my feet, with the crown of thorns and blood dripping down, can I be God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't feel like I am God right now. Can I have that now? In Luke 23, 39, we read there are two criminals that are crucified right beside Jesus. And one of the criminals says to Jesus, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, save us now. Call on your angels. Pull yourself all this cross. Save yourself, he says, and us. Save us now. Can I have that now? Can I have that salvation now? No. Salvation would come three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. And finally, can I avoid that pain? And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus says, oh, can I avoid that pain, God? If you are willing, Father, would you let this cup, this cup of your wrath, this cup of your punishment, this cup filled with pain that I'm about to drink, would you let it pass? And Jesus gets the answer back, no, not as I will, but as you will. Because you see, Jesus embraces God's no because he knows what we often forget. That embracing God's no leads to God's greater yes. See, humility is forged by embracing God's no. Can I be God? No. Can I have that now? No. Can I avoid that pain? No. But when we look to the cross, we see Jesus embracing God's no. We look to the cross because it's the ultimate picture of what happens when we humbly embrace God's no and therefore experience God's greater yes. The yes of a resurrected Savior. The yes of new life for all who believe. And so I'd like the band to come out and give us a moment to truly look at the cross, to truly consider the cross as our picture of humility. Because as I mentioned earlier, we've all been humbled. But how is humility truly forged in our lives? We've all been humbled. But where does humility really come from? If you'd like to grab on to the humility that God himself demonstrated in Jesus Christ this morning, would you take a moment and look to the cross and by embracing God's no, hear God's greater Yes. For life you gave, your body was broken to cross. Gave it all for me, laid it down. You breathe your last breath, you were crucified. You gave it all for me. Hallelujah, you are the Savior. Hallelujah, you are the friend. Hallelujah, King forever. We thank you for the cross.